0: Section 3 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F section three chapter sixty three part three the covenant itself together with the act for erecting the high court of justice that for subscribing the engagement and that for declaring england a commonwealth were ordered to be burnt by the hands of the hangman the people assisted with great alacrity on this occasion the abuses of petitioning in the preceding reign had been attended with the worst consequences and to prevent such irregular practices for the future it was enacted that no more than twenty hands should be fixed to any petition unless with the sanction of three justices or the major part of the grand jury and that no petition should be presented to the king or either house by above ten persons the penalty annexed to the transgression of this law was a fine of one hundred pounds and three months imprisonment The bishops, though restored to their spiritual authority, were still excluded from Parliament by the law which the late King had passed immediately before the commencement of the civil disorders. Great violence, both against the King and the House of Peers, had been employed in passing this law, and on that account alone the Partisans of the Church were provided with a plausible pretense for repealing it. Charles expressed much satisfaction when he gave his assent to the Act for that purpose it is certain that the authority of the crown as well as that of the church was interested in restoring the prelates to their former dignity but those who deemed every acquisition of the prince a detriment to the people were apt to complain of this instance of complacence in the parliament after an adjournment of some months the parliament was again assembled and proceeded in the same spirit as before they discovered no design of restoring in its full extent the ancient prerogative of the crown They were only anxious to repair all those breaches which had been made, not by the love of liberty, but by the fury of faction and civil war. The power of the sword had in all ages been allowed to be vested in the crown, and though no law confirmed this prerogative, every Parliament, till the last of the preceding reign, had willingly submitted to an authority more ancient and therefore more sacred than that of any positive statute. It was now thought proper solemnly to relinquish the violent pretensions of that Parliament, and to acknowledge that neither one house nor both houses independent of the king were possessed of any military authority the preamble to this statute went so far as to renounce all right even of defensive arms against the king and much observation has been made with regard to a concession esteemed so singular were these terms taken in their full literal sense they imply a total renunciation of limitations to monarchy and of all privileges in the subject independent of the will of the sovereign for as no rights can subsist without some remedy still less rights exposed to so much invasion from tyranny or even from ambition if subjects must never resist it follows that every prince without any effort policy or violence is at once rendered absolute and uncontrollable the sovereign needs only issue an edict abolishing every authority but his own and all liberty from that moment is in effect annihilated but this meaning it were absurd to impute to the present parliament who though zealous royalists showed in their measures that they had not cast off all regard to national privileges they were probably sensible that to suppose in the sovereign any such invasion of public liberty is entirely unconstitutional and that therefore expressly to reserve upon that event any right of resistance in the subject must be liable to the same objection. They had seen that the long Parliament, under color of defense, had begun a violent attack upon kingly power, and, after involving the kingdom in blood, had finally lost that liberty for which they had so imprudently contended. They thought, perhaps erroneously, that it was no longer possible, after such public and such exorbitant pretensions, to persevere in that prudent silence hitherto maintained by the laws and that it was necessary, by some positive declaration, to bar the return of like inconveniences. When they excluded, therefore, the right of defense, they supposed that the Constitution, remaining firm upon its basis, there never really could be an attack made by the Sovereign. If such an attack was at any time made, the necessity was then extreme and the case of extreme and violent necessity no laws they thought could comprehend because to such a necessity no laws could beforehand point out a proper remedy the other measures of this parliament still discovered a more anxious care to guard against rebellion in the subject than encroachments in the crown the recent evils of civil war and usurpation had naturally increased the spirit of submission to the monarch and had thrown the nation into that dangerous extreme during the violent and jealous government of the parliament and of the protectors all magistrates liable to suspicion had been expelled the corporations and none had been admitted who gave not proofs of affection to the ruling powers or who refused to subscribe the covenant to leave all authority in such hands seemed dangerous and the parliament therefore empowered the king to appoint commissioners for regulating the corporations and expelling such magistrates as either intruded themselves by violence or professed principles dangerous to the constitution civil and ecclesiastical it was also enacted that all magistrates should disclaim the obligation of the covenant and should declare both their belief that it was not lawful upon any pretence whatsoever to resist the king AND THEIR ABHORRENCE OF THE TRAITOROUS POSITION OF TAKING ARMS BY THE KING'S AUTHORITY AGAINST HIS PERSON, OR AGAINST THOSE WHO WERE COMMISSIONED BY HIM. THE CARE OF THE CHURCH WAS NO LESS ATTENDED TO BY THIS PARLIAMENT THAN THAT OF MONARCHY, AND THE BILL OF UNIFORMITY WAS A PLEDGE OF THEIR SINCERE ATTACHMENT TO THE EPISCOPAL HIERARCHY AND OF THEIR ANTIPATHY TO PRESBYTERIANISM. DIFFERENT PARTIES, HOWEVER, CONCURRED IN PROMOTING THIS BILL, WHICH CONTAINED MANY SEVERE CLAUSES. The Independents and other sectaries, enraged to find all their schemes subverted by the Presbyterians, who had once been their associates, exerted themselves to disappoint that party of the favor and indulgence to which, from their recent merits in promoting the Restoration, they thought themselves justly entitled. By the Presbyterians, said they, the war was raised. By them was the populace first incited to tumults. By their zeal, interest, and riches were the armies supported by their force was the king subdued and if in the sequel they protested against those extreme violences committed on his person by the military leaders their opposition came too late after having supplied these usurpers with the power and the pretences by which they maintained their sanguinary measures they had indeed concurred with the royalist in recalling the king but ought they to be esteemed on that account more affectionate to the royal cause rage and animosity from disappointed ambition were plainly their sole motives and if the king should now be so imprudent as to distinguish them by any particular indulgences he would soon experience from them the same hatred and opposition which had proved so fatal to his father the catholics though they had little interest in the nation were a considerable party at court and from their services and sufferings during the civil wars it seemed but just to bear them some favor and regard. These religionists dreaded an entire union among the Protestants. Were they the sole nonconformist in the nation, the severe execution of penal laws upon their sect seemed an infallible consequence, and they used, therefore, all their interest to push matters to extremity against the Presbyterians, who had formerly been their most severe oppressors, and whom they now expected for their companions in affliction the earl of bristol who from conviction or interest or levity or complaisance for the company with whom he lived had changed his religion during the king's exile was regarded as the head of this party the church party had during so many years suffered such injuries and indignities from the sectaries of every denomination that no moderation much less deference was on this occasion to be expected in the ecclesiastics even the laity of that Communion seemed now disposed to retaliate upon their enemies, according to the usual measures of party justice. This sect or faction, for it partook of both, encouraged the rumors of plots and conspiracies against the government, crimes which, without any apparent reason, they imputed to their adversaries, and instead of enlarging the terms of Communion, in order to comprehend the Presbyterians, they gladly laid hold of the prejudices which had prevailed among that sect, in order to eject them from their livings. By the Bill of Uniformity it was required that every clergyman should be reordained if he had not before received episcopal ordination, should declare his assent to everything contained in the Book of Common Prayer, should take the oath of canonical obedience, should abjure the solemn league and covenant and should renounce the principle of taking arms on any pretense whatsoever against the king this bill reinstated the church in the same condition in which it stood before the commencement of the civil wars and as the old persecuting laws of elizabeth still subsisted in their full rigor and new clauses of a like nature were now enacted all the king's promises of toleration and of indulgence to tender consciences were thereby eluded and broken it is true charles in his declaration from Breda, had expressed his intention of regulating that indulgence by the advice and authority of parliament but this limitation could never reasonably be extended to a total infringement and violation of his engagements however it is agreed that the king did not voluntarily concur with this violent measure and that the zeal of clarendon and of the church party among the commons seconded by the intrigues of the catholics was the chief cause which extorted his consent. The royalists, who now predominated, were very ready to signalize their victory by establishing those high principles of monarchy which their antagonists had controverted. But when any real power or revenue was demanded for the crown, they were neither so forward nor so liberal in their concessions as the King would gladly have wished. Though the Parliament passed laws for regulating the navy, they took no notice of the army, and declined giving their sanction to this dangerous innovation the king's debts were become intolerable and the commons were at last constrained to vote him an extraordinary supply of one million two hundred thousand pounds to be levied by eighteen monthly assessments but besides that this supply was much inferior to the occasion the king was obliged earnestly to solicit the commons before he could obtain it and in order to convince the house of its absolute necessity he desired them to examine strictly into all his receipts and disbursements finding likewise upon inquiry that the several branches of revenue fell much short of the sums expected they at last after much delay voted a new imposition of two shillings on each hearth and this tax they settled on the king during life the whole established revenue however did not for many years exceed a million a sum confessedly too narrow for the public expenses a very rigid frugality at least which the king seems to have wanted would have been requisite to make it suffice for the dignity and security of government after all business was despatched the parliament was prorogued before the parliament rose the court was employed in making preparations for the reception of the new queen catherine of portugal to whom the king was betrothed and who had just landed at portsmouth During the time that the protector carried on the war with Spain, he was naturally led to support the Portuguese in their revolt, and he engaged himself by treaty to supply them with ten thousand men for their defense against the Spaniards. On the king's restoration, advances were made by Portugal for the renewal of the alliance, and in order to bind the friendship closer, an offer was made of the Portuguese princess and a portion of five hundred thousand pounds, together with two fortresses, Tangiers in Africa and Bombay in the East Indies. Spain, who after the peace of the Pyrenees bent all her force to recover Portugal, now in appearance abandoned by France, took the alarm and endeavored to fix Charles in an opposite interest. The Catholic king offered to adopt any other princess as a daughter of Spain, either the princess of Parma or, what he thought more popular, some Protestant princess, the daughter of Denmark, Saxony, or Orange and on any of these he promised to confer a dowry equal to that which was offered by portugal but many reasons inclined charles rather to accept of the portuguese proposals the great disorders in the government and finances of spain made the execution of her promises be much doubted and the king's urgent necessities demanded some immediate supply of money the interest of the english commerce likewise seemed to require that the independency of portugal should be supported lest the union of that crown with spain should put the whole treasures of america into the hands of one potentate the claims too of spain upon dunkirk and jamaica rendered it impossible without further concessions to obtain the cordial friendship of that power and on the other hand the offer made by portugal of two such considerable fortresses promised a great accession to the naval force of england above all the proposal of a protestant princess was no allurement to charles whose inclinations led him strongly to give preference to a catholic alliance according to the most probable accounts the resolution of marrying the daughter of portugal was taken by the king unknown to all his ministers and no remonstrances could prevail with him to alter his intentions when the matter was laid before the council all voices concurred in approving the resolution and the parliament expressed the same complacence and thus was concluded seemingly with universal consent, the inauspicious marriage with Catherine, a princess of virtue, but who was never able, either by the graces of her person or humor, to make herself agreeable to the king. The report, however, of her natural incapacity to have children seems to have been groundless, since she was twice declared to be pregnant. The festivity of these espousals was clouded by the trial and execution of criminals. Berkstead, Cabot, and O'Keeve, three regicides had escaped beyond sea, and after wandering some time concealed in Germany, came privately to Delft, having appointed their families to meet them in that place. They were discovered by Downing, the King's resident in Holland, who had formerly served the protector and commonwealth in the same station, and who once had even been chaplain to O'Kee's regiment. He applied for a warrant to arrest them. It had been usual for the States to grant these warrants though at the same time they had ever been careful secretly to advertise the persons that they might be enabled to make their escape. This precaution was eluded by the vigilance and dispatch of Downing. He quickly seized the criminals, hurried them on board a frigate which lay off the coast, and sent them to England. These three men behaved with more moderation and submission than any of the other regicides who had suffered. O'Kee, in particular, at the place of execution, prayed for the King and expressed his intention, had he lived, of submitting peacefully to the established government. He had risen, during the wars, from being a chandler in London to a high rank in the army, and in all his conduct appeared to be a man of humanity and honor. In consideration of his good character and of his dutiful behavior, his body was given to his friends to be buried. The attention of the public was much engaged by the trial of two distinguished criminals, Lambert and Vane these men though none of the late king's judges had been accepted from the general indemnity and committed to prison the convention parliament however was so favourable to them as to petition the king if they should be found guilty to suspend their execution but this new parliament more zealous for monarchy applied for their trial and condemnation not to revive disputes which were better buried in oblivion the indictment of vane did not comprehend any of his actions during the war between the king and parliament it extended only to his behavior after the late king's death as member of the council of state and secretary of the navy where fidelity to the trust reposed in him required his opposition to monarchy vane wanted neither courage nor capacity to avail himself of this advantage he urged that if a compliance with the government at that time established in england and the acknowledging of its authority were to be regarded as criminal, the whole nation had incurred equal guilt, and none would remain whose innocence could entitle them to try or condemn him for his pretended treasons, that, according to these maxims, wherever an illegal authority was established by force, a total and universal destruction must ensue. While the usurpers proscribed one part of the nation for disobedience, the lawful prince punished the other for compliance that the legislature of england foreseeing this violent situation had provided for public security by the famous statute of henry the seventh in which it was enacted that no man in case of any revolution should ever be questioned for his obedience to the king in being that whether the established government were a monarchy or a commonwealth the reason of the thing was still the same nor ought the expelled prince to think himself entitled to allegiance so long as he could not afford protection that it belonged not to private persons possessed of no power to discuss the title of their governors and every usurpation even the most flagrant would equally require obedience with the most legal establishment that the controversy between the late king and his parliament was one of the most delicate nature and men of the greatest probity have been divided in their choice of the party which they should embrace that the parliament being rendered indissoluble by its own consent was become a kind of coordinate power with the king and as the case was thus entirely new and unknown to the constitution it ought not to be tried rigidly by the letter of the ancient laws that for his part all the violences which had been put upon the parliament and upon the person of the sovereign he had ever condemned nor had he once in the house for some time before and after the execution of the king that finding the whole government thrown into disorder he was still resolved in every revolution to adhere to the commons the root the foundation of all lawful authority that in prosecution of this principle he had cheerfully undergone all the violence of cromwell's tyranny and would now with equal alacrity expose himself to the rigors of perverted law and justice that though it was in his power on the king's restoration to have escaped from his enemies He was determined, in imitation of the most illustrious names of antiquity, to perish in defense of liberty, and to give testimony with his blood for that honorable cause in which he had been enlisted, and that, besides the ties by which God and nature had bound him to his native country, he was voluntarily engaged by the most sacred covenant, whose obligation no earthly power should ever be able to make him relinquish. End of Section 3 Chapter 63, Part 3 Recording by Jim Dennison J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N dot ICanVoice dot com